All right, today on The Nose, we're going to talk about The Menu. The Menu actually is going to be one of the most watched movies in the U.S. from 2022. Didn't get a lot of Oscar nominations, but it seems to be a crowd pleaser. So there's that. There's also the Oscar nominations themselves, and they're always controversial. They're always complicated. There's always a lot to talk about. We're going to do all those things. Snubs is not a word I like, but there are ways in which the Oscars are kind of a meat thermometer for the entire industry that is Hollywood, and that is the way movies are consumed and enjoyed and not enjoyed these days. We'll try to get into that, too, today on The Nose. That's entertainment. We're still messing around with the mic. I think the microphone's fine now. <laughs> we, <laughs> we've had terrible, terrible microphone problems for two days, but I think they're over. Uh, okay, so welcome to the, uh, what is this show called? It's called The Nose. Uh, and we do talk about entertainment. We'll specifically be talking about entertainment in terms of the Oscars, the Oscar nominations, which came out this week. And we'll also be talking about a movie called The Menu, which really kind of didn't get any Oscar nominations, despite having a lot of interesting people in it and being, I think, kind of good in its own way. Just me talking right now. And, of course, we're all just very upset about the fact that Panic at the Disco is no longer going to be performing together. I'm just kidding about that. I don't really know who they are. Uh, but we're going to play something about Panic at the Disco at the end of the show. Uh, this week, and but and like if ELO breaks up or something next week, I don't know. It could be like just a constant thing where we never get back to our Grayson Hughes song. Uh, so, but we'll do our best. We'll do our best. We always do our best with everything. And when I say we, I mean especially this wonderful panel today. Sam Handelman works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Handelman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Lindsay Lee Wallace is making her debut on this show. She writes about culture, health care, and health equity and other stuff. And she was on one of our episodes, and we liked her so much, we thought, we went to mom and dad and said, can we keep her? Can we keep her? Can we have her on the nose, please? Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. He's recently rebranded as Usman. I don't think I can get used to this. I think I still have to call you Bill. But... Um, We'll work on it. All right. It's like Morrissey or something. Do you think people, Morrissey's friends call him Morrissey? I'd like to think of myself more as Elvis, but, you know, that's up to you. Well, you'd be doing a lot better than the Oscar nominations if you were. So True. we're going to start there. <laughs> on Tuesday, the Oscar nominations came out. So I should say that I'm kind of a fan of the Oscars, not because I care who wins. I don't. I really don't care who wins. But I think the process is really good. You know, and Michael Schulman was saying this on the New Yorker Radio Hour a couple of Sundays ago, that it's really a chance to sort of take the temperature of show business and Hollywood and kind of how they feel about everything and what they're getting right and what they're getting wrong and what their attitude is towards a lot of stuff that gets released and how some of the infighting and games are worked out. 
And I think we have all of that this year. So, Bill, since you already have the floor, I'm going to go to you. I don't know. Is there a particular I, – I mean, I just want to say that, obviously, there are all this talk about, um, about inclusion and exclusion. And a powerful case could be made that some pretty significant black-directed and acted and themed movies were overlooked or excluded this year. And there's – also, some question about why there were no women directors nominated this year. I just want to say, as an Irish American, I'm I'm feeling pretty good right now. Banshees of Inisherin, The Quiet Girl, <laughs> Paul Mescal. You know, uh, we're not the oppressed minority we used to be, but we still like to have our little day in the sun because we never get any sun. All right, so but Bill, you have the floor, not me. So a couple things that you start out with, I agree with. First of all, I I I I don't care. I, I have no skin in the game. I'm not betting on this. Uh, makes no difference. If you asked me who won like a couple of years ago, I wouldn't be able to tell you without using Google. Um, but on the other hand, this idea that it it's kind of a, a, a central touch point and it does help us kind of figure out, you know, what's out there and what's getting noticed and you know how i guess at least this kind of insular group of people are responding to that but there's always beefs and you know i think part of it is the beefing there's always going to be things that were left out that people are up in arms about i'm one of them um two of my favorite films from last year armageddon time and nope uh, got nothing. N- they just said nope to both of them completely. And, you know, to me, that that's kind of baffling if I look at some of the films that did get nominated uh, or nominated multiple times. But I think that's just kind of part of it. You know, we argue about it, we fight about it, we quibble. And then, you know, the day after, at least for us, who aren't part of the industry, it's meaningless. For for people who are part of the industry, it, it is meaningful. And the representation thing that you mentioned, it's, it is a real problem, but it's a problem in Hollywood in general, not just in the Oscars. Right. So we should say that Bill and I are not young. Uh, however, the rest of our panels, hey this, this is the youngest panel I think we might have ever had, because Sam and Lindsay are both very young. I don't really exactly know how their ages or anything like that. And I don't see age anyway. I just don't see it. But Lindsay, <laughs> I, I'm just guessing, you know, this is maybe you haven't been through decades and decades and decades of Oscar nominations. <laughs> this might be a, I have not. a slightly fresher experience for you. So I'm just interested to know generally what you're thinking right now. Um, I mean, I think that I would agree that I don't think the I don't pay a ton of attention every year to what's going on with the Oscars or think that it's indicative of, you know, the actual quality of every single movie that's been released over the year. Um, But I agree that it's sort of like a bellwether of how a certain group of people are feeling. And I guess more than how they're feeling about what's just happened, I see it as a way of what is likely to get funding and publicity push behind it in the year to come like once studios see what has Mm -hmm. succeeded then they know where they're going to allocate their efforts going forward um which i think is also part of the real reason that it that the the oscars matter beyond you know the opinions of the the people who are voting is that it's about 
who's going to get an opportunity to make their movie and tell their story going forward. Right. Although in terms of those resources, you know, the Oscars can be Oscars can be a little bit uh, misleading. I mean, we're going to be talking a little bit later about the movie To Leslie, which, because of a very unusual campaign, resulted in a Best Actor nomination, Best Actress, I guess they say, nomination uh, for Andrea Riseborough. The gross receipts, if you took all of the gross receipts for that movie right now, and went down to your local Hyundai dealership. You should you could not buy a 2022 Santa Fe <laughs> with that money, with all of the money that that movie has made. They would say, "Do you have a trade in? Is there something else you can throw in here?" Because you're really not, you, you know. If, certainly, if you want the the LX package, oh, we can't do this with this money. Twenty seven thousand dollars, I think, is what the movie is. Gross. I mean, that's an argument for the used car market, I guess. Sorry, I have to say right. that my dad sells used cars, and I'm on the radio, so here I am. <laughs> Absolutely, but it's a much better business to be in at the moment than the movies. Uh, people really want used cars right now. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. So, Sam, uh, you know, although I know you pretty well, I have very little idea of what your relationship is to the Oscars typically or how you feel about this year's draw. Um, I try not to pay attention to award shows because I'm trying to maintain not being angry all the time. <laughs> and I think that, like, looking at nominate, like, like this sentence in the variety piece, it was like seven women have been nominated for director in Oscar history. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, like, just that one little bit just, like, makes my eye twitch a little bit. Um, some notes. Uh, I'm glad Tar pulled it off. I'm glad Tar made Oscar bait movie and ended up getting a bunch of Oscars, you know, that's fun, I guess. Uh, it's cool to see, like, movies that people actually want to see, like, get nominated. Like, I saw a couple people, like, kind of put their nose up to the fact that Top Gun got nominated, and I'm like, yeah, a movie that people actually wanted to go see en masse and was good is being nominated. That's cool. Um, I'm really happy that Everything Everywhere All at Once is getting all the play that it deserves. But I did see some online chatter of, like, People even like overanalyzing that film and being like, oh, this is really what is Oscar worthy now. It's like, yeah, it was good. People liked it. I cried twice. Um, I, I don't know. I I think also it's cool to see that like Hollywood's kind of turning a page. Uh, I believe all the nominations and the best actor, it's the first time being nominated in that category, if I read that right. Um, and it's cool to see like a nice transition where it's not just all legacy actors and legacy directors like we're seeing some fresh faces and that's nice but yeah usually don't pay attention happy some good movies are getting some time well bill he's bringing up a thing that has kind of dogged the oscars for a while i mean on the one hand they are dogged by their legendary unfairness and lack of inclusiveness which is still something of a problem although they've tried to address it in recent years and certainly the year that Moonlight won for Best Picture, you sort of thought, wow, this is like on so many different levels, not what the Oscars typically do. So there's that, and that we'll, we'll have that conversation over and over again for years to come. They're not going to fix that anytime soon. But there's also a, a separate conversation, and it's the one Sam just invoked, which is that they were believed to have kind of a prejudice against big box office movies, and this kind of came to a head uh, the year of The Dark Knight, I think, was sort of a moment when the Academy thought, maybe we should have more Best Picture nominees, and that's how we have 10 Best Picture nominees now. But I think it is meant to do that, to say, all right, so Top Gun and, and the Avatar movie, you're in, you know, and you're not really kicking out some worthy, artistically valid movie because there's eight other spots. Yeah, but what that creates is just this kind of, particularly for the best picture, you know, which, you know, that's the one I 
pay most attention to. And I think except for, you know, cinephiles and, you know, people really invested in the industry, that's that's the one that, you know, carries the 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 weight of all of this. It it creates this really like weird melange. Like how do you have like how is there so they're saying this was the best picture, which in and of itself is, you know, just a, a, a framing that's that's rife with built-in problems. But if you're going to do that, then it has to be some type of comparative process. And, you know, how do you compare, you know, how do you make any comparisons whatsoever with Top Gun and women talking? You know, how do you make any comparisons between Avatar and Triangle of Sadness? You know, well, I first, should specify first Avatar to, the way of water. Yes, first, first of all, you'd have to see see at least one of them. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which right. sort of hasn't really been my experience so far. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think... You know, the, the 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 problem that that is always going to be there, I think, is if you try to put everything in, into this old into this this one big bucket. I, If I'm not mistaken, there was a proposal a couple years ago. I'm not sure like what they were going to call it, but sort of like best, you know, like popular film you you and versus... your you and your friend McPants are on the same page he is pointing this out right now uh, it was in 2018 the, the idea of outstanding achievement in popular film was floated and it's been <laughs> indefinitely postponed yeah and like to me that's an intriguing idea you know because then you've got you know your your superhero movies and your top guns and you know you've got them over here and then you've got the other stuff I'm not sure what you know, best achievement in unpopular films, like best achievement in films for snobs, like I best achievement in films for pointy headed intellectuals. I'm not sure, you know, exactly how you do that, but it might help with some of that. Just this is a very strange stew um, at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, Lindsay, as he's saying that, I'm thinking in a way, one of the fictions of the Oscars is that that there's a common market for movies. Uh, I, I feel as though. I was looking at all the things that didn't get nominated, and I was thinking, I don't watch a lot of horror movies, but there's like a whole thing about horror movies, and some of them are really, really good, and some of them are not so good, and and, and they're not going to get nominated unless they're really, really unusual, sort of, you know, Sixth Sense kind of unusual, or big box office <laughs> or something. But, you know, it, 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 I don't know. I, I heard you chuckling while Bill was talking, so I just want to know what you were chuckling about. That's the truth. Oh, I'm sorry for... My no, no. We like to, we we encourage. <laughs> oh, I love it. We, encar- we, we encourage, encourage chuckling. chuckling. Yeah, we don't encourage okay, you chuckling great. at chuckling at Bill stuff that much, but we do encourage oh, generally no, speaking I do. chuckling. <laughs> Chuckle away. I was chuckling in the 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 jokes for pointy headed snobs category, but I also <laughs> chuckle in the popular jokes category. So I'll I'll make it more fair. <laughs> but I was I was thinking that I feel like. Um, the Oscars are just like we all collectively suspend our disbelief about the idea that they could have fairly evaluated every film that that's, has existed. Mm-hmm. And adding another that's category would way. just be like, sure, now another 10 can be on this list. But we all still would have to be kidding ourselves to think that they were actually, you know, taking into account all of the effort that went into filmmaking this year. Like, that's not mm-hmm. what it's about. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. It, 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 but it is about start, starting certain kinds of conversations. So, Sam, you know, it's sort of interesting because in a way, to my mind, the most extraordinary story of these nominations is both a really good story and a really bad story. And that is this, I already mentioned it, it's the story of this movie, Too Leslie, 
which really nobody has seen. Uh, and Michael Shulman writing in the New Yorker compared it to the the movie in the uh, the movie that the uh, uh, for your consideration the Christopher Guest thing the, the sure. you know the Purim movie that nobody doesn't even really exist. So it's like, does this movie even really exist? But it starred uh, Andrea Riseborough. Uh, a British actor, and some of the people behind the film, particularly the wife of the director, who is in the actress uh, Mary McCormick, who I think plays Howard Stern's wife in Private Parts. That might have been her big role. But she got this sort of groundswell going among actors and had people like Gwyneth hosting screenings and stuff like that. And there's a five-day voting window. It's ranked choice voting. And somehow or other, the star of this movie that nobody had ever seen before. <laughs> Not only did, nobody even knew that they hadn't seen to Leslie because they didn't know it existed, uh, <laughs> is one of the no- nominees. And, you know, Sam, in a way, that's sort of a nice example of taking maybe a pointy-headed little indie kind of role and doing something with it. And Kate Blanchett and getting one of her many best actor- actress roles that she's already collected, the first words out of her mouth, basically, were saluting Andre, uh, Andrea Riseborough. On the other yeah. hand, Bo, oh, you go, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. You take the ball. I, I was going to say that that was like a mad lib for pointy heads. Like every single like name drop, every movie. I was like, what is he talking about? Yeah. I will say that like that is the fun of like the award season, right? It's finding that underdog, that movie that you're like, oh, I haven't even heard of that. I'll check it out. I think that is for me my favorite part like because there's just so much out there as we said like with categories expanding a million movies that you can watch every once in a while you stumble on an actress you might have never seen or an actor you've never seen or a film that as Colin said nobody's seen and you're like yeah maybe I'll be that guy um I think that's one of like the net positives of award season yeah although Lindsay I mean, first of all, I think it's very charming that this happened. But if you wanted to construct the counter narrative, the counter narrative is a bunch of Hollywood actors and beautiful people uh, and well-heeled cognoscenti got together and they contrived a way to get this movie into the conversation and this actor into the conversation. Which is great, except that Viola Davis doesn't get nominated, or the the star of Till doesn't get nominated. You know, there's a lot of people, including uh, actors of color, who are going begging in that category. They're they're just not in there, and so it's lovely that she got that kind. Of, but if you wanted to cons- wanted to construct a kind of paranoid exclusionary <laughs> uh, argument, this is like the Illuminati picking one of the nominees. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's something to be said for the fact that there's usually a really specific way that an Oscar campaign happens and you recognize, you know, from the moment that the movie comes out, like like we were saying with Tar, that's that's Oscar bait and it succeeded. And you recognize the people involved in the movie attempting to get it nominated right from the start. And a lot of the people who, you know, are historically excluded from that kind of awards consideration, like black creators are, you know, playing that game and then to have somebody who is being, you know, nominated via this like kind of guerrilla campaign. And it's like this charming underdog story is sort of a slap in the face to everybody who is like playing this game in this in this arena where they've been excluded only to, you know, have it have it turn out that somebody else can get what they've been gunning for just by getting a bunch of, like you said, beautiful, famous people to play the game for them. Which isn't to say that you know, I haven't seen to Leslie like most people, so <laughs> I'm not. I can't comment on whether that's deserved, but um, it just seems it goes back to the idea of like, of course, this isn't some objective evaluation of everyone's work. There's so much more politics at play. You don't think that like that 
beef, as Yuzman said, should be reserved for like subpar major films that were nominated. I don't know. Like if I, if if something's gonna get there that I haven't seen and maybe isn't deserved, wouldn't it be better if it's like a gorilla film rather than like a major motion Avatar movie? But I thought you wanted. I, to mean, say, yeah, I thought you wanted movies like that to be in there. The no, that's why, that's why I'm asking. Well, okay. well, not 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 Avatar, but like I don't know. Like when you, when, <laughs> like what when, when you described to me sounds more like milk toast major films that deserve that rather than like. But I haven't seen the movies. So I don't know. You want to? Well, yeah, I mean, ahead. I also think part of the thing with conversations like this is like nobody has seen that movie except for however many people it takes to raise twenty seven thousand dollars at the box office, and I wish that I could ask one of them. About it. <laughs> I think that, I think twenty seven people saw it. They just paid a thousand dollars each. Right, that's what happens if I'm not when it's mistaken. all famous people in the theater. Right. <laughs> I just want to say that when we talk about pe- people of color, we often forget blue people. You know, the prejudice against Avatar, uh, which I share, <laughs> is very deeply ingrained. Like, I, I, looking at that, I, like, I didn't think... I don't even know where to begin this conversation. I was actually interviewed by this blog years ago that was called like Women with Glasses or something, and and she, it was Abby Olheiser. Old, anyway, they one of the questions they asked me, they said, "What was what's your favorite moment in movies of somebody removing their glasses?" You know, those famous, my goodness, Miss Yamamoto, you're beautiful, you know. And I said, really, it was probably when I was told I could remove my glasses at Avatar uh, and and not watch the movie anymore. Um, But, you know, I mean, Bill, that's sort of an interesting thing. Like, I don't really know people who want to go see this new Avatar movie, but somehow or other, it's both popular and critically acclaimed at the same time and is a Best Picture nominee. I kind of don't entirely understand how all that... Maybe James Cameron is just so powerful. I mean, I, I guess. guess that would be the difference between, you know, the the discrimination facing the animated 10-foot-tall blue people and, you know, the actual discrimination against people of color in this country structurally that, you know... Somehow James Cameron always manages to come out on top. Can't imagine why, (laughs) considering the massive campaign against him. But he is brave. Right. Bill, what were you going to say? Well, you know, Avatar, you know, you know, the first one like made like this huge giant splash. And it's got like this veneer of environmentalism to it and like faux sort of like honoring indigenous people. And I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, Hollywood liberals, you know, love to suck up while ignoring material realities. Uh, if I could just throw out a few numbers. This, so this was in, in in something that we read and it was from a USC Annenberg uh, research report. D- to me, the problem isn't necessarily like like the awards are the 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 golden apples you know, being plucked from the tree, but the problem is the roots of this. And so 111 directors were hired to make 100 top grossing movies last year. 9% were women. That's down from the previous year. Um, Black, Asian, Hispanic, Latino, and what they call multiracial and multi-ethnic movie makers, 21% down from the previous year. Women of color accounted for a mere 2.7% of directors of the top 100 movies last year. So that's that's where the problem is. The problem isn't necessarily in the awards, although that's part of the problem. It's in the soil. Like if if there's such poor representation in the people making the films, then that's inevitably going to play out in terms of what's being awarded. Right. And, and I, but that goes to 
Leslie, to your original point, which is the awards do probably generate some resources, not as much resources as actual strong box, box office performance, but the fact that awards keep a moving in the conversation probably affects who gets hired and who gets funded in future cycles. I definitely think so. And that, you know, mm-hmm. that goes to like we were talking about Nope not getting nominated with which as a um, as a horror aficionado, I am personally devastated by. But it feels like, you know, there was a moment for prestige horror and there was a moment also i feel like especially in the summer of 2020 with black lives matter protests for like we're listening and learning from institutions like the academy awards that are now perhaps saying thank god we don't have to keep listening and learning anymore we weren't going to make changes we get to go back to sort of the status quo you know sam you made a point earlier that i didn't mean to gloss over which was that it is a kind of time where you think okay so now I, i used to do this before the pandemic I saw everything, and I saw almost everything in movie theaters, and around this time of year, I would be just racing around with my partner and usually our friend Kevin, and we would try to see anything that was nominated, and it was kind of fun, and it was a project and stuff like that. But I do feel another thing that's happened is that because people aren't in movie theaters as much anymore, and they're making their choices at home, they're looking around, they're trying to see, do I have to pay to rent this movie? How about, there's something else that I could just stream right off HBO Max? It, it the consensus isn't as clear anymore. And so, I mean, there is at least kind of a joy to be had in saying, oh, here's a movie I never I never heard of, Fire of Love. It's the best documentary uh, nominee. I'll go watch that on Disney+. Plus. I mean, I don't know. There's good and bad things about what I'm just describing, I think. Yeah, I just think it's like that dynamic of, yeah, like you said, it's really hard to actually find films that you're either like go on streaming services and they're shoved down your throat or... Maybe you want to go to the movies and check out a film you haven't seen. Like that's a really tough dynamic. As someone who ought, like frequently wants to go to the movies by myself and pick out a random movie, it's been tough. Um, but I think that yeah, like I said, that this award season kind of was nice. I feel like it was it signaled a return back to the theater a little bit, like having those big box office films. Other than like Avatar, which I really will have smoke for forever. I can't believe that got nominated and Nope didn't. <laughs> um, a stupid three-hour film about environmentalism and yeah, Jesus. Uh, see my eyes. This is why I don't pay attention to awards because now my eyes twitching. Fern, Gu- um, Fern Gully is way better. Anyway, continue. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah. I think it was cool that like Banshees got in there, like actual films that might connect with real audiences and i guess that like i said was the upside but you're right i feel like streaming services and that model has kind of screwed up this whole process but there was a few golden eggs in the mix all right so we're gonna have to stop there um the academy awards are coming up in march uh we'll probably talk about them again but not like this uh but we're gonna take a little break we're gonna talk about a movie that didn't really get nominated for much of anything so we didn't plan things this way i mean we never plan things this way where you going? I'm just born. She said I'll only be gone for a while. My mother loved to leave in style. That's why God made the Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. 
individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back to the nose. Oh, I have some bulletins. These are courtesy of uh, Mr. McPants. So to Leslie is now rentable, according to him, for $7.00. So if a lot of people do that this weekend, you know, then the filmmakers uh, will be able to go to Leslie's father and buy a much nicer used car than they were going to be able to afford with the 27 grand they'd made so far. So um, that's good news, right? I also want to say, this is sort of pulling back the curtain a little bit, but (laughs) so as you probably know, we have like a Slack, I don't know, why would you know this? We have a Slack feed running all during the show. And so the producer's always kind of updating me and telling me what I'm doing wrong and all this kind of stuff. But like today, all McPants is doing is just hocking me about Aaron Sorkin stuff, you know, because he knows it gets on my nerves. So he's like, <laughs> he's just telling me that Mary McCormick was in the West Wing and that there's a very funny scene in Studio 60 where Bradley Whitford puts on his glasses. He's just doing this to raise my blood pressure. Uh, all right. I needed to get, get that off my chest. Uh, today on the show, Sam Hattleman uh, from the Sam Hattleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Lindsay Lee Wallace writes about cultural health care and health equity and other stuff. And uh, Bill Usman, a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. We are going to talk about the menu. The menu stars Ray Fiennes uh, and, and Anya Taylor-Joy. I'm finally going to say those names in the right order. I realized recently that I've been saying them in the wrong order for quite some time. And uh, it is about a very high-end exclusive restaurant called the Hawthorne. Uh, and it's about a particular seating uh, one night at the Hawthorne, which is on an island where all kinds of people come together at their respective little two-top tables or four-top tables and get ready to to enjoy the food of this genius chef. And so let's hear a little bit of this. You're going to hear Hong Chao, who, by the way, is nominated nominated for an Oscar, but not for this particular role, but for The Whale. Uh, Rob Yang, Paul Edelstein, Janet McTeer, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Hult. uh, I don't know how you say his name. I've been watching him since he was a little kid, but I don't know how you say his name. Arturo Castro. uh, And here we go. B1 Cat. This is where we live. You, well, you actually live here, all of you? All of us, except Chef. Yeah, well, Oof. esprit de corps, no? No, Mr. Feldman. It's very much more than that. Here we are family. Each day starts at six with five hours of prep work. We harvest, we ferment, we slaughter, we marinate, we liquefy, we spherify, we gel. And we gel? Yeah. We gel. Dinner is typically four hours and 25 minutes. Each day ends at well past two in the morning. So yes, it's best that we all live here. You guys ever get burnt out or? Burned out? Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. Like tired of doing the same thing. Chef holds himself to the highest standard and so do we. We never burn anything unless by design to make delicious. Now, who's hungry? All right, so um, 
let's just begin with talking a little bit about sort of what this movie does and doesn't do. And so Lindsay Lee Wallace, maybe get us started here. This is, uh, like so many movies these days, a movie that's sort of playing around with several different tones. It's kind of borderline horror movie. It's definitely a thriller, but it's also a comic and it's specifically, I think, kind of a social satire, too. So maybe talk a little bit about how that blend either works or doesn't. Yeah, I think that it was interesting how it kind of, it felt like it showed up as part of like a little wave of movies with the theme of Eat the Rich, like uh, Knives Out, Glass Onion, and Triangle of Sadness. And I think we all kind of mentioned that we, because it's a, a movie about a ominous restaurant thought that the eat the rich theme was maybe going to be a little more literal i know that i did <laughs> um but i i feel like yeah it has it has like a you know a, it's a story about this man who's realized that the art form that he's endeavored to become the best at is no longer bringing him joy and that perhaps the purest form of that is actually not artistic but instead you know a good old-fashioned cheeseburger no spoilers sorry i guess um but I think that that's it's really interesting, especially the clip that we just heard when they mentioned burnout. You talk about, you know, which industries get to experience burnout and these people who are in the high pressure environment of this kitchen. You know, she can't even fathom that. She's like, we would never burn anything except to make it delicious. Um, (laughs) And I think that that's, you know, when compared with all of these other people here at this restaurant who consider themselves very important, who are very um, wealthy, arguably, they are, you know, that's an idea that they have access to that maybe the people in this restaurant don't. And I feel like the movie is sort of winking, suggesting things like that, because I don't think at the end that it coheres into like a very powerful call to action of any kind, but then maybe that's not something that we should be expecting from our movies that come out of Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, I think we could circle back to that, but Lindsay, I, you know, I don't watch a lot of horror movies uh, and the movie that made me the, excuse me, the, the product that made me the most tense this year that I was aware my raised pulse, uh, uncomfortably raised pulse during every episode was the bear. I always feel like in the, in, in the bear, like stuff is just going to go wrong and they're kind of operating on a much more of a, a shoestring than they are obviously in this particular movie. But there is that kind of sense of performance, of things going wrong. What happens if things go wrong? And and this kind of shows you maybe the opposite end of it. But Lindsay, that's sort of, a, it seemed like kind of the point that you're making though, that the people have to throw so much of themselves into it. And they're not, not all going to get rich like the Ray Fiennes character either. Yeah, I mean, the the tension is definitely palpable. And like you said, it's, it's sort of a horror movie. It's definitely a psychological thriller. But in terms of how they're creating that tension, it's definitely, you know, it's like about the real world circumstances behind the movie more so than it is about anything that horrible that's happening. Although maybe I'm just desensitized thinking that nothing that horrible happens in this movie. Um, but... <laughs> Well, we can't really I mean, argue that. what I thought it was going to be. Right. We can't argue that point without spoiling things. So, um, so Sam, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I'm not even sure I know exactly what your reaction to this movie was. Um, well, I went in. I don't watch trailers, and I don't look up, like, descriptions of films. I literally just look at the poster, and I'm like, yeah, all right. And so one night I was alone. I was like, you know what? I'll try this movie out. It looks like a fun foodie film. And I was pleasantly surprised to see what it unraveled to be. Kind of reminded me of like uh, when I went to go see Parasite and had no idea what it was about. I was like, oh, wow. Um, but I'm just like a sucker for like dark comedy, class analysis, like, you know, light homicide vibes. 
I think that that has like <laughs> kind of become my my niche. Those certainly are the, those are the tasting notes on this movie. So you, you get yeah, them perfectly. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm getting tones. Um, and yeah, I get why the people who are heavily invested in any of those three topics might think that this movie doesn't lean too hard enough into it. It's like, oh, it doesn't. It's not lefty enough. Oh, it's not critical enough. Oh, it's not funny enough. But I think for me, the way that film has kind of developed into, well, you can't just be one genre anymore. You can't just be horror. You just can't be action. It has to be like a hyphen. And I think that this pulled off being a multi-hyphenate film really well. Some really tight acting performances. Anya Taylor-Joy knocked it out the park. Um, I thought Ralph Phineas, I hope I'm saying that right. Fines, uh, Ray Fines. Fines, he was incredible. Nicholas Holt, even Janet McTeer, like, Everybody pulled their weight in an ensemble cast, and yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I think this is the movie where Anya Taylor-Joy, she kind of hammers down the final tent spike, you know, that establishes her as really just, you know, one of the central actors of the the current moment anyway. I was saying in our emails, it really feels like she and Aubrey Plaza are the kind of... I'm not putting up with your nonsense women uh, <laughs> of the moment. But uh, before we go to Bill on this and, and uh, but that whole issue of class, it's sort of interesting because it really breaks down a little bit. I mean, we start to see some of the ugliness come out uh, over one of the courses in the dinner. So let's play B2 right here, Cap. Bread has existed in some form for over 12,000 years, especially amongst the poor. Flour and water. What could be simpler? Even today, grain represents 65% of all agriculture. Fruits and vegetables, only 6%. Ancient Greek peasants dipped their stale, measly bread and wine for breakfast. And how did Jesus teach us to pray, if not to beg for our daily bread? It is and has always been the food of the common man, but you, my dear guests are not the common man, and so tonight you get no bread. In this spirit, please enjoy the unaccompanied accompaniments. I gotta say that the shit around the total absence of the bread is like really good. <laughs> All right, so I mean, Bill, that that scene as it unfolds a little bit more is really interesting because. There are people at that restaurant who are used to getting what they want, particularly if what they want is something like bread. And they almost can't fathom the idea that they're really not getting bread. And particularly the <laughs> the sort of venture capitalist bros or whoever they're supposed to be at that, that one table. They're just like they can't even process this idea that they can't get bread if they want it. And, and I think at that point, some of the movie's more sociopolitical ar- ar- uh, arguments do come out a little bit. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, this idea of the no bread bread plate on the one hand like it is really funny in terms of skewering foodies and it's it's really easy i think to make fun of foodies especially a certain type of like elite foodie um and the film does a really good job with that but the whole no bread bread plate like it it takes on this sort of dadaist almost absurdity and that's the parts of the film that that I liked the most. And I do think it is, let me say it's 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 trying to raise some really interesting questions about 
those class divides and whether a chef is an artist or just another member of the service industry that we have kind of fetishized. Um, and those are some of the more interesting aspects of the film. I think it's a like it, it was enjoyable for me. Um, you know, me and my wife have gone to restaurants and we've left and we've said, yeah, that's good. Um, I don't know if we're going to go back or not, but like, it was fine. Like, and, and, and I thought it was fun. And I think it does try to do some things. One of the more interesting things for me is I think it really does try to deal with, um, sort of this notion of how people can kind of slide into complicity with evil and complicity with fascism. Uh, just by sort of becoming bystanders and becoming paralyzed in terms of not knowing what to do. And I think that there could be some some really interesting uh, ways that I thought the film could have delved into that even more. Um, one of my critiques of it, even though I did for the most part enjoy it, is none of the people are really real people. They're not you know, I, I guess the, you know, Anya Taylor-Joy character comes closest, but even she's not fully developed. We know so little about them. There's just sort of little hints and winks. But then again, and as I said to you all, I'm not even sure if that's a fair criticism because it's not trying to be that kind of film. It's not trying to be Armageddon Time or The Fablemans. It is almost more of an allegory. Um, and as far as that goes, I, I think for the most part, pretty much does work. Yeah, I mean, Lindsay, I think the allegory thing is is probably kind of true. There's even a kind of fan-generated thing uh, on the interwebs about how maybe the seven deadly sins are somehow or they're embodied if you sort of add up all the, the kind of icons uh, that, that are up there right now. But to me, at least for the first half of the movie, the thing that I really liked was, and I, I, this might be a difference between you and me because I've seen a lot of the horror movies that you've seen, <laughs> but I, I managed to have a certain amount of excitement about like what's going to happen? What are they going to do? How is this going to work out? Uh, which I think is hard to do if you're also doing satire. You know, At a certain point, you don't really care how Gulliver's life gets works out You know, among the Lilliputians or something like that. He's, but I, to me, the stakes kind of remained in place. But that could be just because I live too tame a life compared to, to your exciting horror and blood-drenched existence? Um, I mean, I think... <laughs> I think that I... It's interesting because I didn't consider it a horror movie, really, which, I, I mean, I guess you're right. I just, I'm just soaking in my bathtub of blood, so I don't even notice anymore. But <laughs> I think that it's definitely, you know, it has... It wants you to feel scared, and it builds tension deliberately, which I think is interesting. But I think, you know, I mean, as, like, horror send up screen proves to us one of the things about horror is that you're like guessing what the twist is going to be trying to figure out who the killer is and the menu is very much like in being an allegory it's not you you might be unsure about what the specifics of what's going to happen are but you are pretty clear on like who is being punished and why and i think that that makes it maybe that's part of why it didn't necessarily read as horror to me is that it was not mysterious in that way um but i definitely i definitely agree about you know they they cultivate like a, an air of fear throughout the entire thing, and I appreciated that, um, even if it wasn't necessarily waiting to find out what was going to happen. 
Right. Yeah, the fear. The fear is what I'm talking about, I think. All right. Well, we should probably take a break here. The movie is The Menu. It's on HBO Max right now. I feel like a lot of people have seen this movie, partly because it's on HBO Max, but I don't really know that. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations. slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. We're back. The technical producer today, as is the case most days, is Cat Pastor. Uh, Jonathan McPants is pretty much always the producer of The Nose, and he is today as well. Uh, we've got a terrific panel here today with, you know, Lindsay Lee Wallace, obviously putting up some Rookie of the Year numbers here with just a wonderful, wonderful debut Ooh. on The Nose. We're hoping you do come back, uh, Lindsay. So maybe uh, we'll make some recommendations. I won't make you go first because it's your first time. Sam, what are you going to recommend to us today? Uh, I'm going to recommend two things. One, I just started this new book called Stay True by Wasu. Uh, it is like a coming of age story. Uh, I'm honestly on the first 20 pages, so I can't tell you more <laughs> than that. But it's like one of those New York Times, read with your morning coffee, walk your dog type of thing. So I think people will enjoy it. Um, also, I'm going to recommend the three new songs by the band Boy Genius, which is the super group of Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, they have a new album coming out in March. They just did a Rolling Stone cover. Um, if you haven't been paying attention, I think rock and indie alternative, whatever you want to call it, uh, is having its most exciting moment probably of my young adult life right now. And if you want to start somewhere, Boy Genius is a nice place. I like Boy Genius, too. And, of course, the link back to our earlier conversation is that Phoebe Bridgers has broken up uh, with Paul Mescal and is now with Bo Burnham. So <laughs> I can't believe I just... Really? How I, do you know this? I, I can't I, believe I just <laughs> reported that like it was news. No, uh, no, no. But I did. You, you, you no, that's an so, incredible and important update. Thank you. Yeah. No, like Colin is so tapped into celebrity relationships, and yeah. I just want to know how. Well, you know, I hang out with a lot of these people. Uh, <laughs> uh, and things come up. People talk about their lives. So, uh, Lindsay, I think you're warmed up and ready to go. What are you going to recommend to us? Um, well, I think, uh, first of all, the album Nothing is Sacred by Adam Laporte for fans of boy genius like myself. Um, it's like indie alternative pop folk, and I'm a big fan. Uh, the other thing I'm going to recommend is the movie Kajillionaire, uh, which is written and directed by Miranda July. And I think that it has... Um, like a similarly bizarre and whimsically beautiful, hopeful tone to uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, but on sort of a more intimate scale. Um, and know, it's just one of my favorite movies. The first half of it is like the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. And the second half of it made me think life was worth living. So if you're looking for something like that, Kajillionaire. Actually, you know, a good double feature would be Everything Everywhere All at Once and You and Me and Everyone We Know, uh, which is <laughs> Miranda July's first movie, I think. Uh, so, all right, uh, Bill Usman, what have you got for us? Okay, so both of mine are related to my Oscar snub beefs. Um, 
really upset about Jordan Peele being uh, snubbed again. And to get over that, I've been going back and watching old episodes in, of Key and Peele. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's so good. And it still stands up so well, even though it's like eight years down the road now. So go back and, and watch yourself some episodes of Key and Peele. And then the other one- I just want to say, Bill, I literally did that this week. It's so weird. But I oh, actually did so that. funny. Yeah, anyway, continue. Did you watch it with Phoebe Bridgers or on your own? No, because really, I'm kind of Team Paul actually, and he's hurting. Okay. He's, he's uh, I, Paul's, I, Paul's I, in a lot of pain right now, and I don't like Bo Burnham anyway. Go he ahead. He usually is. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, and then my other one really, it, it's it's so I I complained about Armageddon time, and it just it just put me in mind of uh, a 2003 novel by one of my favorite writers, Jonathan Latham called the fortress of solitude mm -hmm. um they're they're different stories but they're they have some touch points in common the the era a relate a friendship between boys of different racial backgrounds it's it's one of my favorite novels from the 2000s so fortress of solitude jonathan latham all right so um what I'm going to recommend is a sort of, first of all, uh, Lindsay has also set me up beautifully for this because I'm going to recommend a movie called uh, Fire of Love. It is one of the documentary nominees. I kind of uh, shouted it out earlier. It is about a husband and wife, French uh, team of volcanologists. It's a documentary. Um, it's, I don't, I think, I could actually tell you what happens to them because I think they see it kind of right near the beginning of the movie, but I'm not going to. But it really is remarkable in its beauty. Um, I'm not like somebody who sits around thinking about volcanoes and wishing I could see more of them. But uh, but <laughs> but now I am. I think I wasn't that way, but now I am. And all the celebrities, by the way, that I watched this with, they also really enjoyed uh, this movie. Uh, all three members of I'm With Her were there, and they loved it, especially Sarah Jaros. So, um, and the other thing, but the funny thing about it is there's this kind of whispery, uh, plaintive uh, narration that goes on. There's somebody narrating the movie all the way through. And I'm sitting there watching it and going, this is, I don't know whose voice this is, but this is like the perfect narration. It doesn't sound like any kind of documentary narrator you've ever heard before in your life. But it's exactly the right person, whoever it is. And I looked it up. It's Miranda July. So there you go. It's all tying together, the circle of life. Anyway, I would just sort of also just generally recommend, you know, run your eye down the list of some of the foreign films, some of the documentaries. Weirdly, they don't all get released right around the time that they're nominated. Like, I'm not even sure The Quiet Girl is watchable at this point. Uh, clo close? Closer? Close, I think is what it is. The Belgian movie. I think that just... Uh, became available maybe to see somehow. But, I mean, find some of the movies, uh, Argentina in 1985, stuff like that. It's all up there streaming, and, you know, you can sort of wind up making yourself see some movies that you might not have bothered to see otherwise. Wow, what a lot of fun this was. Sam Haddleman, Lindsay Lee Wallace, a star is born, obviously, here. Uh, Bill <laughs> Usman, uh, thanks to all of you, and, uh, or excuse me, Usman. Thanks to Usman. It was great to have Usman on the show today. We will be back on Monday with something else.
up, sing hallelujah. Show praise with your body, stand up, sing hallelujah. And if you can't stop shaking, lean back, let it move right through ya. And say your prayers, say your prayers, say your prayers.